In this episode, we're continuing our conversation with faculty about linguistic bias. Do powerful institutions determine our ways of speaking and use of language? Expressions of teaching and learning come in all forms. Why accept what's been accepted? So Mana, my question to you as a computer scientist, right? And, and computer science language being coded, you write code to a machine, right? So the machine is your, your audience. And if the machine can com compute it, can compile the program, it works. But I'm, I'm wondering as a computer scientist, as you've come up through the discipline, and as you're sort of looking into the future, where is those articulations, your ability to write that code? How are you seeing that? Or are you experiencing that as just empowering you? Like you're constantly being given this language to make your own choices with it? Or are you feeling like there's a right way to do it and certain people can do it and certain people can't do it? I'm kind of loading this question a little bit, but I, I, let me back off from that and just ask, what's your experience been with, with code in computer science as a language? Well, I feel like, you know, you know, just like English, there has to be like a grammar. There has to be some basics. You have to know how to code, you know, just like you have to know how to speak and how to use words. So I think that's like a general thing, a universal thing that everyone has to follow. So um, that's really general and doesn't matter, you know, if you have like a different type of coding or if you like to code it in a different way. Um, so I think that's pretty general and there's no way that you can change it, but the appearance, it really, the appearance of the, the application that you're coding or the way that you want things to be sorted, that really depends on you and how you want to structure it. So I feel like it's like a 50-50 situation where, you know, for the basics in order for something to run, you need to know how to do it, but you can do it any way that you like. For language, I think it's a little different. I think language is a bit more flexible, but I think maybe just in terms of academia, because when you go out there in the real world, you know, it's a little different. You know, your professors might be welcoming and they might say, hey, you know, you're doing great. We really appreciate your value and we really appreciate, you know, your true self. But, you know, I used to live in North Carolina and people are different from uh, Californians and when they would hear my accent, their attitudes would change a little bit. So that's not how the real world is. And I think that it really, you, you know, it really depends on your environment. And sometimes that environment isn't as friendly and as open as you would think. So I, I think it's a little different, but at the same time, you know, there are a lot of similarities. I wanna stay here for a second from the other side of the desk here. So, you know, I tell my students in the intro to sociology class that sociology provides the social scientific language and measurements for the things that they already know best. I mean, they're living in society, right? They're participating. I have to just give them the labels and what we call this. And when that happens, this is what we call that. And there's this, what Mana's really speaking to is this idea of professionalization. You know, the idea that we work toward the recognition of being somebody that has expert knowledge, but not just expert knowledge, we're also talking about expert conduct, right? Dress, behavior, way of speaking, all of these different things. These are the politics of professionalism. This creates a hierarchy and maintains a hierarchy that is, that's largely based on language and certainly framed by language since language is the framing mechanism for all material and non-material culture, right? So my question is, when we experience frustrations with our colleagues, uh, uh, other faculty members, with students, with people, 
when we experience frustrations um, because they're not meeting our ideas of professionalism, it, it, are we perpetuating bias in many forms, including language? I, I'm getting nods for sometimes <laughs> for, for the listeners. I'm getting nods in the room. Yes, <laughs> I, I think that there's you know the the whole idea of professionalism and collegiality and politeness at work are very contextual but there is also the ability for someone to be a jerk <laughs> like that's a real thing people can be rude to you and uh, sometimes it's unintentional other times it's not uh, done from a place of, of caring about the impact but I don't know I think that like Sometimes it's a misunderstanding. Sometimes it's two people communicating differently. Sometimes it's different linguistic choices. But other times, I mean, I, there are people who are not self-aware enough to understand that they might be being rude to somebody else. And I don't know if it necessarily has to do with language and culture. So there's assholes out there is what you're saying, Eric. I think so. I'm pretty sure. Okay. Right. I mean, <laughs> I don't I, think I don't everyone's always, yeah, <laughs> I don't think everyone's always right. You know, like sometimes somebody's a jerk, like. Somebody, sometimes someone's having a bad day and they take it out on you and then maybe they apologize the next day or something. Maybe they're just a jerk, but I don't think it's always uh, either one of these. I don't know. What do you think, Maria? Oh, <laughs> well, I hear you all talk about respectability politics, you know, nice. that, that we, we need to, there's a, there's a certain politic in the way that we engage in the professional arena and that is loaded with, with power, you know, if having, knowing how to engage in the exercise, the politic already gives you power. So I wish more people understood Stuart Hall's notion of articulation so that I could have this conversation with them in, the, in a more, you know, for those that said, you're very articulate, Maria, they're not coming from the, the Stuart Hall perspective, you know, cause that is about asset you know, that I am able to exercise and access a particular asset. You know, it's interesting when you asked that question about, or when you were, when you were contextualizing articulation in that way, Curry, just last night I logged into UC Santa Barbara has Sheree Moraga and Celia Herrera Rodriguez as, uh, and the English, the English department actually brought these two Chicana indigenous uh, artists and writers, practitioners, for a five-year residency to develop like an indigenous pedagogy and uh, for art and, and literature uh, in the humanities. So this hits on like the humanities kind of aspect of this conversation. And they have invited through, now that we're in COVID, you know, um, uh, streaming conversations with different art authors and artists and community workers. And they had Luis Rodriguez on last night, who is, you know, formerly the Los Angeles Poet Laureate. Uh, he ran for governor, I think, several years ago, California. Uh, and he, you know, he did time in, as an incarcerated uh, individual or justice impact indi individual is from the San Gabriel Valley, you know, kind of homeboy, you know, homegrown. And through his poetry, you know, he, he talks about and, uh, Celia Herrera contextualized it very nicely. She says, you know, you work with the idea of erasing ourselves in order to be seen. 
gosh, think about it. That is so deep, right? Right. That we have to somehow respectability politics. We some somehow have to erase some part of ourselves. And I'm not going to go with the jerk in ourselves, you know, because <laughs> that's very subjective and kind of extreme. But like, let's say about like, what does the home pedagogy, the home language that I bring to the table that somehow I need to like put that to the side, shelf it for a little bit in order to be seen. That to me feels very, um, that is not about articulation. That is not the way that we access our agency. That is about conformity to a certain degree, right? That is about forced assimilation. Uh, that is about buying into and further perpetuating respectability politics. So it, I think it's a delicate dance in our positionality in terms of who we are will determine how invested we are. Because I know that as a woman of color, as a Chicana indigenous identified woman, I need to somehow understand, you know, the power structure in order to challenge it, in order to shift it. And I'll go as far as Denise's, or maybe I'm putting words into your mouth, Denise, but I'm hearing from you like eradicate it, right? Eradicate it. Oh, hell yeah. Yes. And so I don't know how many people are ready for that. <laughs> we're, we're working on that. We're working on that. But that is that is the project, right? I hope when we talk about these anti-racist, anti-decolonial structures That's or movements. Goal. That's the goal. I have no idea how to get there, Maria, right? I mean, I shouldn't say no idea. It, I, I have incremental ideas about some of the ways. Um, this podcast is one of the ways. Um, some of the practices we've talked about in terms of, you know, how a faculty member quote unquote sets standards how we work with the concept of equity. But yeah, over, I mean, I, I just, I feel like this is one of those like wisdom moments, right? Like I'm old and therefore I get to call the wisdom card every now and then. And I feel like I have watched too long that we keep saying, no, 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 it, it is this way. And so therefore yeah, you have to buy in. You have to be able to code switch to the standard expected, or you'll never get the job, the power, the money, the what, whatever is sought. And I think that's how, one of the ways we have kept white supremacy in place. And so I really, really think it's one of the pieces we need to dismantle in as deliberately as we can. What goes to this idea? I hear people say all the time, once I get into that position, once I'm in that position of power, I will make the change happen, right? Once I infiltrate the system, if you will, and that's making the assumption that you've ever been outside of the system to begin with, right? And we're not. And, and that you will not be changed and you will not be assimilated and you will not be a, a totally different type of professional or person by the time you occupy that. I mean, how much scaffolding is involved in that process? And how much influence do others have on you to even give you a chance at an opportunity? Maybe as far as faculty and our perspective, uh, maybe what can be helpful would be instead of uh, uh, focusing too much on the system that we're, we've been talking about the system, uh, the overall uh, situation, uh, to focus on on the identity, which is what came out from Maria's like uh, last words, right? So because that's that's the other side of the of the coin basically on for because language is identity is is the same thing so 
uh, if we, but the identity is the person, is the individual. So we focus more on on caring on the individual and valorize, uh, give it more importance to that side, at least in our day-to-day -day job. And that might be maybe a perspective shift that can be upset of some help. Um, on that note, what I hear you talking about, Andrea, is like individual practice, right? Like what we do as individuals, as opposed to the focus on the system. Yeah. So to focus on the on the individual, on the on the individual, on the individual student, on the persons, uh, because they they express themselves through the language. So their expression is the expression of their identity, and that's the key part that is the most important that I found. Every day, I mean, in in a, in a language class, it's clear that if some the the people that have the students that have a stronger identity of themselves are they can succeed easier than uh, than people who are still looking for uh, an identity or they're maybe in between two identities, but they are not well, I mean, strongly grounded, right? In, in either one or in both. Uh, I think that we should. Uh, we should give more importance to multiple identities and uh, in all uh, types of, uh, of society, it can be language, can be sexual identity, whatever, you know? Uh, and if that would be more of a focus, more of a um, constant focus at the college in, in, in the profession, generally speaking, not just, not just us, of course, I think that we, we could give it a more, uh, a bigger push maybe. Right. And that, that's why I was bringing up the question about professionalism, because I have a very specific example, but I'm not going to name names. Some of you will probably figure it out just as I start talking here. You know, I, I've seen somebody, I, I've seen people give presentations on equity issues in the community college um, system or in our profession. And I really think that people are receptive to the message depending on if that speaker is aligning with what we consider standard or traditional or articulate or any of these kind of things. Heard the same person saying the same messages, but from themselves in, in the way that they speak. And I've I've heard people say that they don't like this presentation style, they don't appreciate it, they're not learning anything from it. But if somebody of the same identity as that person, or or you know, same racial ethnic identity is what I'm talking about, says it in a way that is more in line with what the, the, the general understanding is of professionalism and, and, they, and they speak in a certain way, the, the message is the same, but it's, it's much better received or, or well-received rather, right? And, the, and, and people accept it. My, and I wanna push on this a little more. Do we do that? And, and is there a line here? And when you're dismantling and you wanna create something new, create a new structure, what, what kind of safeguards do we have in place to ensure we're not going to be replicating that same structure just with different variables and different features. And we start by dropping a lot of F-bombs. Just sneak as many F-bombs as we can into Say emails. fuck it. Yeah, just fuck it. Right. My fucking podcast is not fucking legitimate anymore because of this very fucking segment. Yes, exactly. Got it. Ruined it <laughs> or, or liberated it. How many people you, turned you know it off right now? <laughs> I'm, going, I'm, just... I'm going back. Hold on. I would, I would, I would say, what would my mom say? And my mom would say, el concepto de ser educado. 
and Andrea, maybe you understand this. I think from a educado, not as in being educated, like through a mainstream, but there is a particular education that happens in the home, you know. And it's about identity um, and values and, right? And who, and who am I accountable for, you know? Yeah, and I, I'd like to hear from others too. And kind of the thread I'm hearing us pull on is this, okay, formal language needs to be humanized. To, to be professional means I need to erase part of myself. And I do that because professionalism has a power structure I can access through that kind of language. So I, I hold back this other part. I, I are, you know, exercise this professional language. So how, in our disciplines, in communication, in teaching languages, um, in the writing center, what, what are we thinking about this? How do we, those, and, and as professionals, as teachers, right, what's, what are we thinking about? I, I think for, you know, everyone, or at least all the faculty here speaking right now, we're all tenured and uh, we're at a college that talks about this kind of stuff quite a bit. And, you know, I think it's easy for us to say, bring your authentic self, because guess what? If you do, you're not going to get fired if you get too weird, because it's like super hard to fire you unless you do something really offensive. And even then it's still hard to fire you. So like, I think there's different ways that that could impact you, right? Like you might not necessarily get what you're trying to get. You might not be able to accomplish what you're trying to get done if you're not um, playing certain games or, or, you know, showing up the way that people might expect you to show up or showing up the way that people might think is, is what their image of, of someone in that position would, uh, would have. But I think in, you know, a lot of times in other positions where if there's fear of your supervisor, if your, you know, job is, a, especially now, right, where employment's a little bit shakier for a lot of people, the, the ability to, to bring your less formal self to an environment that has dictated that this is the, the communication climate, I think is a lot more challenging than it might be for, for all of us here. And I think for, you know, for me personally, I can relax into the way that I talk now more than when I was trying to get tenure, when I was a you know, tenure track faculty, more than when I was at San Diego State as the debate coach, where I was just a, a you know, a lecturer with all these important people. Um, so now I can relax more into it, but that's because of a level of security and probably being a little bit older and wiser, not as wise as Denise, but older and wiser and being able to, uh, you know, understand the ramifications of, of what my words are actually doing and how they're heard and, and hearing that a little bit more. Uh, but I think that it's, it's hard to, to bring your authentic self when there's an element of fear of how you might be received specifically in a, a working context, because you don't know what you're giving up and you might, might not necessarily, I don't know, like the impacts. I think with this formal informal language element that we're talking about. I mean, I, I agree with you, Eric, right? We, we are in extremely privileged and relatively stable positions. And yet we also police one another. So and as an example of that, when I wrote my first sabbatical report, I actually had a faculty member, well, I had the committee technically tell me that I couldn't use contractions in it because this was a formal report that was going before the board. I said, uh, sorry, this is my home language. I'm a working class kid. That's what brings me to the community college. You're not gonna stop me from saying that. So in a way you're right. Like uh, I said, I've got tenure, no. 
But on the other hand, literally our colleagues attempted to tell me I was not allowed to do that. And so I, I think, you know, that's part of it too, is how do we help people to realize that? I was lucky that the liaison from that committee understood what I was saying. And in fact, then read my dissertation where I, you know, made an argument about that. But nonetheless, it, it wouldn't have had to have gone that way, right? The proposal earlier, I had taken out the word terrified because again, a committee member had said, oh, you can't put in your proposal that you're going to be terrified to do this. And I said, but that's the point of this particular activity is going beyond what I've done before. And that's terrifying. So, you know, we, we, we get policed on our language. There's two examples, one I acceded to and the other I did not. I wanted the darn sabbatical. I acceded to that, like, okay, I disagree with you, but I'll do it, right? And, and that's, that's part of the crux, right? When we're willing to give in, even with our security, the, the stakes are high. So can we ask the question, um, is in this hypothetical, well, not even hypothetical situation, but like the reverse of that would be, is the intention of the person delivering this quote, informal language, non-sanctioned, you know, institutional form of communication. Is that an intentional way of challenging the, the hierarchy and the power structure of the institution and its culture? And, and or is this the way that, that one's identity, that, that one carries themselves in the world always, whether it's in a power structure or not. So is it like conscious or is it unconscious? I know that's maybe taking us to a different and a different direction, but I wonder because if it's a conscious choice, this is about the rhetorical situation, right? Yes. We make moves, we make moves in our, in the delivery of our message. So how we do that. And I, I didn't want to take it there, but that's what it is, right? If it's intentional, because I'm going to say, fuck you to the institution and you're not going to dictate, you know, how I'm going to then, then by, then, then yes. You know what I mean? Like, yes. And if it's you, not like, is it still a yes? <laughs> you know, <laughs> Maria, are you asking us, do we want to be the weirdo college or do we just generally want to be weirdos in the world? <laughs> I don't know what and, I'm and asking. I'm weird. just saying like, <laughs> you know, yeah, keep it funky, right? Or keep well, it weird. I think that that positionality and intentionality, if unconsciously I can move through a situation and succeed, whatever my purpose was, I've internalized how that structure, how those structures works and how that system works. So I, it's internalized. I'm doing it unconsciously. We would, I think I would call that privilege, right? And I think in my classes, what I want is I want students in the positions that they occupy to be able to determine their purpose and then affect it, right? So both, I want them to have access to their internalized languages, uh, their home languages, and then also to study other languages, right? Not because those are the language and that's the standard and you have to do that to succeed. It's, this gives you a, a larger range, right? You can, you can articulate, right? Mesh languages to a greater effect to achieve more of your purpose, uh, maybe even realize that you, you know, you have options to a greater, you know, and I guess what I'm trying to say is pluralize. That's where I'm after, right? Not necessarily eradicate systems, but to pluralize when we say professional, 
I think of a lot of things. I don't think of one thing. I think that's that's how I'm responding, Maria. So this is for all of you, and I would really appreciate everyone's answers. So um, what makes language legit in your classrooms or, um, Denise, in your case, the, the writing center? And, you know, can you explain, like, what do you mean by legit when you're explaining your answer? Effectiveness. I think if if something is communicated to me effectively and, you know, I, I teach sociology, so I'm not too worried about a lot of the structure and a lot of the the commas and periods I don't know I, I don't feel like that is a huge part of my job with um, what I'm doing I, I, I'm looking for engagement in the content and if the way that they speak to me I'm understanding it and that that's a two-way street you know it's not just them being able to effectively communicate with me it's me learning how they are trying to communicate with me and I need to be effective in that too. So I think to answer your question, if, if we can get to that effectiveness and we can get to that level of understanding, that makes it legitimate in my classroom. And le legitimate to me means we're learning from each other and we can also explain however that is or express or demonstrate the ideas that we're exploring together um, in ways that make sense for us as individuals, but make sense to us when we try to explain it to one another. I'm going to jump in on that because I think Sean started with engagement. And I think that's absolutely what we want in the Writing Center is engagement. Because the process of walking with a student writer as they, as they work with their ideas and, and put them effectively on paper it's all electronic now, but we still talk that way, right? Put them on paper is, um, is the enterprise. And that means give and take, right? So that's engagement. So it's asking questions, it's following the answers. And ultimately, I think the, the, the goal of that is some kind of clarity. Now that can be clarity of process along the way, that can be a, a clear, like that bright shining moment of an idea. Um, it, it can be the clarity of, no, I know my argument now. I know exactly what I want this paper to be about. But it, it sometimes is very small. It's incremental. And all of that's legitimate language use and pursuit. I just was listening at Sean's words, and it would be exactly the same for me. I mean, in, a, in a language class, it's, it's exactly, I would have the same definition. Sean said it much better, of course, but uh, it's, uh, it's really, I, I think it's very telling because I think that we really are aligning even a language, an international language class with the, the goal of, of that type of class with the goal of, of uh, a sociology class, which is uh, for, uh, English speakers you know, in, in the United States. So I think it, it I was really uh, pleased by, by hearing your, your definition. So I'll, I'll jump in for, so the, again, the question was what makes language legit in, in my classroom? I see it as kind of a, a tension between authenticity and audience centeredness, specifically for speech classes. I, I like to, to tell them that the speech is never for you right? It's always for your audience. Uh, but that also, if you start thinking about it too much that way, then you start pandering and you start becoming inauthentic. So it's this tension between 
showing up as, as yourself in a way that understands who your audience is and navigating the place between where your audience is and how that message is going to land with them. And also uh, understanding your ability as a, as a speaker and as a user of language of, of where you can take them and, and where you can, can bring them. Because just because someone speaks in a particular way doesn't mean that the right rhetorical move is to speak just like them. Right. Because then a lot of times that's inauthentic, even though you might be thinking, hey, if I speak in the way that they're speaking, then it's going to resonate more. But the reality is, is that if you can speak in a way that resonates with yourself, but still have the awareness of the way that it's being received and, and do the dance between those two, uh, which is I mean, that, that's not easy to do. Right. That's that requires a certain level of mind reading and experience and, and luck and craft and, and all those sorts of things. But um, like, like what Sean was saying, I also kind of come to that same place where I'm not using APA as a way to, to take off significant amounts of points, but at the same time, the way that they use research is, is a way that they're going to be building credibility. And the way to really think about that best is, okay, we know who we have here. How, what's the best way to articulate the credibility of this source for this particular audience where it's going to mean the most, but also where it's not kind of overdoing it, um, so it's, I would say it's somewhere between the dance of authenticity and audience centeredness and, and the linguistic choices that, uh, that would be made to find that, that place. So thanks for the question, Mana. And, you know, I just wanted to say, Andrea, I think your point is really important because that, that gives people who are even the ones that are the most resistant, I think, an invitation to explore the possibility, the ones who are most resistant to like learning a second language, you know, or to even trying to pronounce someone's name in the way that's not, you know, a standard American English sounding. Um, so I just wanted to appreciate that point you make because we, we all have that ability, whether we are five or 35, you know. Um, but to your question, Mana, what makes my lang language in my class uh, legit or effective in the classroom? And I think it's two things. First of all, the discovery process of being able to, quote, articulate in the way like an idea, you know, and, and what, what journey does the student along with me or their peers go through to get there? And, and I do put it as in this context of discovery because oftentimes I think students come to our classes thinking that they're not capable of being sort of legit writers or effective, you know, communicators. And so it's, it's unlearning a lot of those internalized ideas around what makes good quote unquote writing and, and that process of discovery for them in relationship with me as their as their professor or perhaps with the peer writing consultant or you know in bridging with the writing center is is very exciting you know is very exciting and i also think that this that what makes it legit is the is the spirit that the communication provides and and i'm going to speak in that way as a as someone who understands that language and words have a spirit. They have a way of moving people. 
and and that's and that's and so when with a student goes through that process of discovery they are able to then tap into a certain communication spirit linguistic spirit that when they embrace as as energy almost and i know that sounds really abstract and you know super like out here but that's i think what's necessary because that validates a lot of what we can't speak a lot of what we can't even formally document in in some type of like essay format so those those two things process and spirit you're appealing to my humanities heart Maria. I know I am the humanist, the humanists. I got the chills. Oh my God. <laughs> Students and faculty engage topics. Dangerous discussions need a safe space. This episode is supported by the Miracosa Foundation's Innovation Grant. The Safe Topics podcast is produced and engineered by Kelly Barnett. James Garcia handles promotion, student recruitment, and research. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and safetopics.podbean.com. Find us on Apple and Spotify. Please rate and subscribe. Thanks for listening. <laughs>